Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll be reading through verse 11 there of Jeremiah chapter 29. And our sermon text is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 to 17. We'll keep that in mind as we begin with the Old Testament reading. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed for, from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jer- Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who, you, who, who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now if you'll turn to First Peter chapter 2, we'll be continuing our series in this book. The last time that we were in First Peter was the end of August, so it's been... A substantial amount of time, and the challenge with that is that as I study and as I read it, I get to know Peter's voice, and I become familiar with him. He becomes like a dear friend to me, and as I present that to you, you become with, familiar with the themes of Peter, and Peter becomes a, a familiar friend to you, and the, the, the flow and the, the richness of that is, is, um, becomes more and more real the longer we're in the book. Well, we've been out for four months, so the challenge this morning is to be to get back into that. So, we'll begin by reading and picking up at the beginning of chapter 2, but our text this morning is beginning in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, 
Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now our text for this morning. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Father, as we consider your word for us through the mouth of the Apostle Peter this morning, we ask and beseech your blessing that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that it would cut us, that it would convict us, that it would teach us in the way that we should go, and that it would most of all lead us to hope in Christ Jesus and in his reign and in his power and control, even in this age of sin and death. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, it seems rather important to say from the get-go that um, as an intern, um, as an intern particularly from that state out west that we're not supposed to talk about, this is probably one of the last texts that I want to preach or proclaim. <laughs> uh, and also, it's very important for us to remember that Peter is writing to those who he considers exilic sojourners. He's really drawing on the Old Testament notion of Israel as exile in Babylon, as we read in Jeremiah, or as God's people as sojourner, like that of Abraham. Basically, outside the promised land, living in a world of, of pagans, living in a world of ungodly people, living in a world who do not confess the same faith that we do. Additionally, there's a lot of similarity with uh, and between at least in order to make an analogy, to get into the mind of uh, and, and assimilate ourselves to this text, there's a lot of similarity between the Roman Empire in the world that then was in the, um, the, the, the 20th century political, uh, let's say, political identity in both America and the Soviet, Soviet Union. Whether or not you're old enough, if you've seen any, anything on the television, you're probably aware that during the Cold War, uh, there was a very antagonistic uh, posture from both the American people and the American government towards those who were sympathetic to communist ideas, 
and to um, ideas that threatened the security and the fruitfulness and the, uh, the might of the American mindset and, and, and state. This was also similar in the Soviet Union and Russia. Alexander Solzhenitsyn notes a similar ethos in the Soviet Criminal Code of 1926. Any action directed towards the weakening of state power was bad. Only what advances the Soviet state was good. And the reason that we bring all of this up is because this was the Roman mindset. Citizens were not only required to contribute to society, but any outliers that threatened the common good, any outliers that posed any kind of discord or raised any kind of discord to the, the fruitfulness and the unity and, the, and the, the prosperity of the city were agitators. They were rebels and they were subject to punishment. So if you mix into this kind of a political atmosphere, if you mix into that, the early Christian church, they were really struggling to find their place in the new world, especially in light of the gospel. I mean, that kind of makes sense when you think about it. All of a sudden, you have this new religion come onto the scenes, quote-unquote new religion come onto the scenes, and you're wondering, where do we fit in this world? How do we as the church relate to Rome, our governors, our culture, and is the church independent? And you, fa- you, you factor into this, this, this growing and festering aggravation that the culture and also the state was beginning to feel against the church for whatever reason, for their ethos and faith, and it creates quite a bit of complexity. And so to these questions, Peter writes, teaching Christians that they are to submit to the government and that they are to participate as virtuous citizens doing good in society. Very brief, very clear in this section, very short. Submit to government, be virtuous citizens who do good. And we'll look at that and consider that in three ways. The context of submission the basis of submission, and the extent of submission. Context, basis, extent. So first, the context of submission. Really here, what I want to do is I want to get into the mind of Peter and the audience. Where does Peter command submission? Where is the location that he expects this kind of behavior and posture to take place? Well, Peter expects submission in a world where he knows believers often suffer at the hands of corrupt and unjust rulers, and at the same time have a deep and sincere longing embedded within them for something more and for something better. We know this, at least in, in terms of the first case, that there's the, in, with regard to tyranny and, and unjust rulers because of the audience that Peter is writing to. What do we know about them? Well, in their recent history, he's writing to, remind you, uh, this large region within Asia Minor. In their recent history, Rome had brutally invaded and taken control of the land and then installed governors to rule over them. Oftentimes, it was the case that when Rome captured a city, instead of killing everybody off, what they would do is that they would actually enslave them. And it was considered a mercy. It was considered better than killing them off. So this is the context in the background, the far background. But you also have on top of this, particularly for Christians, this kind of informal, non-physical government sanction, persecution. An unpopularity with their government and with their culture. And this was part of their experience. At this time, it's probably about 64, 63 AD, 
official government persecution, particularly physical persecution, had not really begun to be, uh, be brought to bear upon the church. Uh, and there's good reason for this. The only reason that, that Christianity had, had thrived as it had was because it kind of flew under the umbrella of Judaism. Judaism was a, a sanctioned government religion, and the, Rome, the, Roman, the Roman cult initially believed, and Roman powers that be, the governments, the magistrates, etc., considered Christianity to be a, a sect of that. But over time, there's two things that are beginning to happen around this time period. The first is that the Palestinian Jews were very heartily rebelling against Rome, claiming that, that God alone was their Lord, and they were starting to cause quite the issue. And so if Jews were beginning to be on the uh, bad side of Rome, then so were Christians. But also, the Christian church was beginning to, it was kind of being discovered at this time that the Christian church was not associated with Judaism expressly. That they were their own distinct thing and they weren't sanctioned. Which means they didn't have the right to deny Caesar as a divine figure. So there's a lot of antagonism, a lot of uh, conflict in the world that they were living in. They were also very poor. This is just simply how uh, the majority of the early church was. They tended to be rather poor people. And yet, believing the word of Christ would lead them to think of themselves as perhaps free from the grips of their oppressors. After all, Jesus did proclaim, uh, come proclaiming that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. So this is the context, this is the experience, this is the mind of the, of people that, of the people and the world of the people that Peter is writing to. It's also notable that Peter is the one of all apostles who's writing this to this region. Recall, if you will, his former misunderstanding about the person, work, and the effect of Jesus' ministry. What did Peter want prior to the ascension and or prior to the resurrection and, and ascension in Pentecost? He he wanted a Davidic king to come and take back Jerusalem. He wanted for Jesus to sit on the throne, not be lifted up on a cross on the execution hill in shameful agony. At that triumphal entry prior to the crucifixion, Peter's expectation was, here is this one that the prophets of old said would ride in on a donkey. And the people would cry out singing Hosanna in the highest. And this is happening. Here's the Davidic king. He's going to come take back the throne. He's going to come take back Jerusalem from the Romans. He's going to kick him out and reestablish the kingdom of God on earth. You think of John 13. He wanted the regalia. He wanted the, the pomp, the show, the crown, the scepter, the purple robe. And so he denied the humility of Jesus when Jesus came to wash his feet. And which apostle was it that was ready to draw the sword when the authorities came to arrest Jesus? There he was, ready to spill blood to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And where was he after the crucifixion? In the upper room, disappointed, distraught, disillusioned, his messianic hopes out the window. So Peter, of all people, understands 
the desire to take up arms, to rebel, to have freedom from corrupt or unjust governors, to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, to have a better experience, better rulers, better magistrates, all the above. And the reality is that that impulse, that desire for political power, that desire for political freedom, that desire for building heaven on earth, that desire for shalom, that desire for the the reign of Christ to be uh, manifested in, in forms that are more visible to us, this is instinctual and familiar to us. It's familiar to to human nature. In fact, on its own, there's nothing inherently wrong with desiring heaven on earth, with desiring Christ's complete and total control to manifest itself in all the earth in perfection and absolution. That's a good desire. And its origin is actually found in Eden. There Adam is building the megacity of God. There he is establishing and building the, heaven, the kingdom of heaven on earth. There his command is, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate creation, build the city. And in this way, he's actually reflecting God's own action as God was pictured as creating earth then filling and subduing the earth in the, in the creation narrative. And so this is embedded into into our very nature, into our very DNA at creation, that we're to build the city, we're to fill the earth, we're to subdue the earth and establish God's kingdom on earth. And the mere fact that we're humans means that, especially in a a sin-cursed world, we're in civic communities that need order, that need government, that need direction and leadership to function and have shalom and have, have peace and have fruitfulness rather than anarchy. Nearly every commentary I read said, unjust governors are better than anarchy, for even pagans have some semblance of good morals to preserve society. This is actually reflected, by the way, in Israel's longing during the period of the, of the judges following Joshua's death, in, in their longing for a king who would come, who would lead them, who would establish righteousness, who would establish justice, and who would help them uh, be God's people. And the reality is that we too, as humans, and, and particularly, I think, if anything, as Americans, feel this innate desire for justice and for equity, for freedom, uh, for, if you will, at least in bygone eras, heaven on earth, and we feel the urge to rebel against oppressive and unjust tyrannies. The perception at America's founding was literally that we are this, the, 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 new, the new city on the hill. The city on the hill is Jerusalem, so they're saying we're the new Jerusalem. Rebellion against injustice and, and, and oppression is literally coded into the DNA of America as codified in the revolution. And then reflected also in the Second Amendment. I really don't want to talk about these things. Um, but I think that it's particularly relevant as, as Americans to hear Peter's message here because we're just like him prior to the resurrection of Christ. And we're just like the ancient church that Peter is writing to, struggling to find our place in this world and struggling to figure out how we are to relate as Christians in the civic sphere. 
And the conclusion that Peter is driving home to as he writes to people in these kinds of circumstances, struggling to figure out their, how, to, how to function in, in this kind of a world, struggling to figure out how to function in a sin-cursed world, the conclusion that he's, he's, he's driving home to is submit and do good. Even in the midst of tyranny. He knows they're suffering. He knows they're powerless. He knows they're under corrupt rulers. He also knows that human impulse to desire Christ's perfect and absolute reign on earth for the Christian kingdom. And he also knows that others in the coming ages like us would be anxious about our own economic and financial circumstances as impacted by the current, uh, the, the current staff in, uh, that's making the legislature. He also knows that we would be anxious about who's passing legislature, about who's, who's leading us, who's guiding us, what laws they, 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 they force upon us, what they permit us to do and not to do. And yet Peter says, submit and do good, not rebel and transform. And the question is immediately raised. Okay, well, how can Peter expect submission? What, what is the basis for which Peter can exhort these people to submission. And that's our second point. The first basis for why we can submit even to tyrannical governments is because of the supremacy of God. Just as Caesar sends governors, so too God sent Caesar. He's the one in control. Now we get this, of course, from Romans 13. Paul says much more about it than Peter does. But we also get this from the Old Testament. You know, you think of something like Daniel 2, 21. There he says, he, referring to God, changes the times and the seasons. He removes and sets up kings. And by the way, Daniel's whole quandary, Daniel's whole issue, his whole question, the, the, the dilemma that kind of sets up Daniel is he's looking at what's happening in Babylon. He's looking at the prophecies of Jeremiah, like that of the 70 weeks and, and this declaration to stay or go and and, and, and he's trying to make sense of it, and he comes to God, and he's like, hey, God, like, you said you were going to send us back. When's that going to happen? Because I'm looking at some of these other things on the timeline you gave us, and it's about time. And then he declares. He changes the times. He changes the seasons. He removes. He sets up kings. And his declaration comes in chapter 2. Just, as, just after Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream about the, the statue with clay feet. And just before Daniel goes to him, he makes that declaration that God is Lord over all the nations. He raises and sets them up. And what's the statute about? It's all about how God has raised up nation after nation after nation and has toppled nation after nation after nation. The statue with clay feet and the bronze and the iron cannot stand before the Lord. Second, the second basis is our freedom to be slaves of God and his plan of redemption. If God's plan is that through our conduct and good behavior he would bring himself glory we ought to be seriously, fervently committed to that. Freedom in Christ is not freedom from the dominion of Rome, Babylon, 
unjust rulers, tyrannical governments. And Roman slavery was indeed brutal, but he says we're actually slaves of God. And I think of it like this. If he's the one doing the sending and we are servants of him, then when we submit to foreign governments, the one that we're really serving, no matter how tyrannical they would be, is the one who says to us, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, for I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that freedom is from the tyranny of sin in our own hearts to be, to be slaves of that, that, that easy yoke, to be slaves of righteousness. And so in perspective, the true Lord over all of creation, our true master, his whip is, is really no brutal whip at all. And so there's an exchange when we, when we submit to governors and do good in society. The one that we're actually serving is our gentle and lowly Savior. And this is something that we're doing is those who are wrapped up in his program for redemption. And this is the third reason that Peter gives. For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. We must be wrapped up in his program of redemption. If Peter says that, and he's asking and he's exhorting that we do this for the Lord's sake, it necessarily implies that this is all a part of God's plan and the movement that he is orchestrating in history to, to make all things new and to reconcile all things to himself. If for the Lord's sake, then it's consistent with the promise of chapter 2, verse 6, whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. If for the Lord's sake, it must be consistent with the reality that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, who he has called into his marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies of his glory. After all, you are those who have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, indestructible, and undefiled, an unfading, kept in, uh, who, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, ready for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. That's all promise. It's all pure gift. Nothing in this age can threaten it. It all must be, if it's for the Lord's sake, it must be associated with that imperishable, undestructible, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through that faith, ready for, uh, to be made ready for salvation. And it all results, in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, in the praise and glory, and, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. It's all promise. It's all part of his plan. It's all part of his program for redemption, his schemes for history. And surely, I think, in the back of Peter's mind, is, as he writes, this is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus called and declared that we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he exhorts in that sermon, 
let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So if to proclaim excellencies, then we want to and need to, for the Lord's sake, as a part of his program for redemption, do good in society in order that, as Peter says, we might silence the ignorance of foolish people. So there's a necessary evangelistic effort here. It's all wrapped up in his program for redemption, guarded through faith for inheritance, to be witnesses to a world by silencing the ignorant as we operate as lights. We do good, we submit, so they have no reason to slander and so that his, his gospel might advance by our conduct. And what is, if, if that's the gist of it, what is the extent of it? To what extent must we submit? To what extent must we be caught up in this? To what extent must, must we commit ourselves? And his conclusion is the furthest. Always doing good. First and foremost, we submit to all that God raises up to govern us. And we know this for a couple of reasons. First, by Peter's explicit command, he says every human institution. But we also know this because of the words that Peter uses to describe the highest magistrate in his land. He uses, the word he uses translated in your English there as emperor is actually the Greek word for king. But it's a Greek word which the Romans hated that the Greeks used for Caesar. They found it offensive, but the Greeks in Asia Minor used it oftentimes intentionally in order to cause offense. So in the, in the same breath that he uses this term... To describe the emperor, he also ascribes a very Roman title to Caesar, supreme. In other words, he's recognizing the Roman political structure and he's rebuking the, Greco, the, 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 the Asia Minor's rejection of Caesar and their disdain for him. So this one that you call king with this inappropriate title is supreme. Surpassing all. And the inference is, you might not like him, but he is your ruler and you must submit. Peter also says that we do good, not using our freedom in Christ for evil, but as servants of God, silencing ignorance by good. Seems pretty simple. Basically, don't use your freedom in Christ to do what you want. Why? Because if you do that, you will be an agitator to society. You will be a non-virtuous citizen or persona non grata. You will be a troublemaker, a hooligan, a rebel, disturbing the, the peace of Rome, disturbing the, the, fruit, the, the, futile, or the, the fruitfulness of the city. You will be offending Roman political ideology and creating issues for yourself and thereby for the gospel message. You will be a schismatic. And here when Peter says, do good, by doing good in society, he's really playing on and pulling on Plato and other Greek philosophers' approach to the city and how the city functions. This is a public, civic kind of good, the kind that benefits society and builds up the city and it's not a kind of reclusiveness that, that kind of just says, this is my home, I live here, I don't do anything else. It's a kind of benevolence in 
civic life that benefits those around you. Even more clear when we think about the reality that most courts produce law that is rather prohibitionary in nature. Don't do this, don't do that, right? Don't murder, don't go over the speed limit, don't resist arrest, etc. But to say do good is to say something else, is to stipulate a kind of law that goes beyond saying don't do this and don't do that. In Peter's paradigm, What he's asking for is that we go beyond our, the, 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 simple, the simple requirements of what we not do and instead stipulates not just that we must not do, but that we must do things. We must be, be actively engaged in, in, in activities that promote the welfare of our city, that promote its, its well-being and its progression. And we see that reflected also actually in Peter or in Jeremiah's words to the exiles in Babylon. Stay in your city. Marry. Be fruitful. Contribute to its welfare. It goes beyond simply inaction. It's telling you to do a kind of action that benefits those around you in positive ways. And the effect of this is that others will see, hey, those Christians that we think are schismatic those Christians that we think are threatening the peace of Rome, those Christians that are this new unsanctioned religion, they're actually model citizens who are contributing to the building of the city. So let your light shine before men for the Lord's sake that they may see you and glorify God. This common good, this contribution to virtue in the public sphere advances the gospel and it also protects the church. But much more than that, I couldn't help but think that doing good is the best way to respond to tyrannical magistrates who are failing their duty. And being concerned with doing good is the best, is the best response to that. You know, P- Peter teaches something absolutely essential about the purpose of government as established by God. They are here to, as he says in verses 14 to 15, punish evil and do good or praise good. Reward good, acknowledge good. Literally, God has established them to do that. And notice here then that Peter, writing to a church that he is aware is suffering, Peter, writing to a church that he is aware is being per- beginning to be persecuted, that he knows ultimately will be persecuted, writing to a church filled with slaves, writing to a church filled with poor, Peter sets no program up for revolution or transformation. And tyranny and corruption isn't an excuse for those impulses. Why? How do we know this is the case? You can't get worse than Rome. Rome was as bad as it gets in in terms of government. So what happens when a government fails to do these things for which they've been established by God? We continue to do good. And that includes civil and I think virtuous protest. Standing for what's right, standing for the truth. But we do what's right even when others don't, and even when the government doesn't require it. In Peter's paradigm, doing good can very well include civilly protesting and, in, and promoting virtue in that civil sphere, but the very important note that he sets up is that it's, it's not 
an agenda and a program of the church. It's doing good and pursuing common good and promoting virtue in the public sphere for the sake of the city. And here it's important to say that, that yes, Christ is reigning and he is in the process of establishing his kingdom, but his justice is absolute justice and only he can bring it. So we can't, we can't do it. In thinking then about these settings where we act as civil protesters, promoting good. I found one commentator rather helpful. This is um, Edmund Clowney. The error is not the conclusion that regimes, that, that regimes so are, are so unjust as to make revolution justifiable. The error is in justifying and sanctifying revolution and rebellion as a work of God's kingdom to be pursued in his name. He has forbidden the sword to the church. And he goes on to argue that the church actually has mightier weapons than the sword, weapons that can reduce the rebellion of the human heart to nothing. There will indeed be a day when the kingdoms of this world will become, in every sense of the word, in ways that are observable to us, in ways that we cannot contest, there will be a day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of, our, and of, our, and of his Christ. In the meantime, we continue to do good. We continue to operate as, as, as beneficial citizens within our society. And I'm, I'm not, of course, saying lie on your back and, and, and let, let people roll over you. The early church didn't pinch, uh, they, didn't, they didn't give incense to Caesar in the context of worship. In the proper arenas, the church rebelled. But I am saying we continue to do good no matter what kind of chaos, no matter what kind of anxiety comes about us regarding the changing tides of powers that be. And I think this is actually important these days. I sense that there's a lot of anxiety about the future of the world, about the future of our country, a lot of anxiety about the future of our economic stability. The reality is that Christ is now reigning and he will return and Peter's exhortation, his, his preoccupation is with continuing to do good as virtuous citizens, to be swept up in the program of God. So it often feels like in the midst of the crumbling American Republic, poor economic policies, unjust and, unjust and corrupt leadership or legislation, we can actually have hope. We can actually have contentment. We can actually have solace. He's in complete control, just as Daniel declared. And just as Jeremiah argued, he's in control. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for its welfare and pray for its behalf. And to people in exile and to people distraught, to people wondering, where are you, God? When will you come? When will you send us home? What's our future like? To people panicking about their circumstances, Jeremiah declares, not as a kind of carte blanche in that context, in the context of the city, living as exiles and sojourners without control. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to make you prosper. Plans for welfare and not for evil, and to give you a future and a hope. I hope that in some sense that's comforting to to us. That our preoccupation with doing good, that that's what we're given to do, that the Lord is in control, that he, He knows the plans He has for us, gives us peace in all the circumstances of life, including that from the highest from the highest courts to the lowest. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and we do give you praise that you're in control. You have the whole world in your hand. We ask that you would encourage us that we would be committed to be virtuous citizens that bless our neighbors, even those that don't know you. We ask that you give us comfort, give us hope, and give us commitment. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.